That is who he is, isn't it? He's the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, restorer, healer, lover of our souls, salvation, king of kings, lord of lords, alpha and omega, the rock, the rose of Sharon. Isn't it amazing? All of that in one person. And he loves you more than words can say. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to have fun going through the message. Carl challenged me that if I could preach a five-hour message, he'd buy me an expensive steak. So buckle up, and we're going to be here a while. You'll all be here in time for church this evening, I promise. Um, (laughs) And that wasn't Carl number one who made me that promise. That was Carl number two, let's be clear. So, (laughs) yeah. God is good, though, and God is working. God is moving. God is providing in amazing ways, you know, to see what he's doing through Awanas, what he's doing through services, what he's doing with our worship team, what he's doing with our church. The opportunities and the doors that he's opened, the options for reconciliation and restoration that he's bringing forward. God is a mighty God, amen? And God is a God who who when he calls us, calls us and challenges us to be obedient. And obedience isn't always an easy thing, is it? We have this thing, it's called a heart. And have you ever heard the phrase, your heart lies? I remember the first time I heard it, I said, I know my heart, my heart doesn't lie. Well, the reality is, is I learned fairly quickly that my heart lies. Why? Because I'm human. I am not divine. I am not God. So sometimes what I feel in my heart is not what God wants. So in that sense, in obedience to him, we find that our hearts get broken and our hearts tend to wander off. And this morning we're going to talk about this. And as we get ready to talk about it, let's start with prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for being a way maker, miracle worker promise keeper, restorer, healer, lover of our souls. Ooh, Father, I love that. Lover of our souls. Mm. You want a relationship with us. Lord, you want a relationship so bad that, that you have pursued us longer than we've known. You chase us, you woo us, you court us. Father, you love us. And Lord, it is so amazing that after everything we've done, you never stop. You never give up because you love us that much. And so, Father, we come to you this morning. We ask you to continue to pour your presence out on this room, Lord. Father, to speak into our very souls, to speak into our hearts. Father, may our focus be your focus. May our our ears hear as you hear. May our eyes see as you see. And may our hands and feet act as you want us to act. Jesus, I ask that you would be in this message this morning. That you would challenge us to surrender our hearts and our lives to you. that, Lord, we would become more like you in every way possible. Father, I surrender to you this morning, and I ask again, I can't ask enough. Father, come and step in. 
Let me step out, Lord. Let the words that come out of me be your words and not mine. Because, Lord, I want to give you honor and glory, and it's all about you, not me. Speak to us through your message this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Jay Stolwell writes in his book, Fan the Flames, that the heart is used in Scripture as the most comprehensive term for the authentic person. It is part of our being where we desire, deliberate, and decide. It has been described as the place of conscious and decisive spiritual activity. It is the comprehensive term for a person as a whole. His or her feelings, desires, passions, thoughts, understanding, and will. It is the center of a person. And this is the place that God turns to. Doesn't that tell you how important the status of your heart is? You see, obedience is central to Jesus' form of discipleship, as it is in other forms of discipleship in Judaism. You will find that obedience at a heart level is the core of what Jesus teaches. Jesus tells his followers to adhere to the motives behind obedience that are found in the Old Testament, not simply to carry out an external compliance, but to live a righteous, holy sanctified life when we're doing for christ what we have been called to do when we are living a life that is pure in motive pure in heart and is being done in what christ's will is not our will then we are living a life for christ the problem is, is, as I said, our heart tends to lie. And when we choose to follow our heart, our will gets in the way. Ever had one of those discussions with yourself? Well, God, I, I know you want me to do this today. But God, I really want to do this. Can I come back and do this later? Did God say set a time frame and come back? No, God said do. But we, we justify we, we make it about, oh, hold on, God, I'll get back to it. I, I want this first. God doesn't say, do what you want and then come back. God says, here's what I want. Obedience says, we follow what he tells us to do when he tells us to do it. So let me ask, do we do what we do because we love Christ and want to be more like him? Or do we simply do it because we're afraid of the consequences. One person told me, I fear God. That man can turn people to salt. I better do what he says and do it to respect him. That's a fear. Do you do it out of fear? Or do you do what you do because you love him and you want to honor him and give him glory and be more like him? You see, in some cases, we choose, like the example earlier of, Lord, I'll, I'll get back to that later, to do what we want over what God wants. And the bad news is that's sin. So let me ask you this question this morning, and then we're going to dive into the scripture. What are your motives behind what you do and why? 
Have you ever stopped to really look at what your motives are? Now you say, Pastor, what's this have to do with our heart? Everything. Because your motives come out of your heart. What are your motives for what you're doing? Are your motives to be more like God? To be more like Jesus Christ? Or are your motives to get what you want and to do it your way? Regardless of what he wants. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6. Starting at verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. To be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And then we're going to jump down to verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. The word of the Lord this morning. Jesus starts right off the bat here talking about our hearts and giving. So he points out the fact, why are you doing what you do? Why are you giving? He, he wants to know, what is it? What is the reason? What is the motive behind why you're giving? See, a lot of people will say, I give because I have to give. Well, the reality is, that's not the reason to give. Jesus is very clear. When you give, you give because you want to be more like me. You give out of a heart that is filled with my love, my grace, and my mercy. When you see people, you give to the needy, not because they're needy, but because I love them and I want a relationship with them. I've shared before that I used to walk down the streets in San Francisco, and I don't carry change in my pocket, so I have to use my keys, but I used to have carry tons of change when people carried money. Now we don't carry money anymore. We carry plastic. 
um, and it doesn't clink, but I would walk down the street with a girl I was dating, and I would jingle that change in my pocket, and it was a habit. Well, in San Francisco, everywhere you go, there's homeless people. And about the second block down the street, I got smacked upside the head. What are you doing? And I said, what do you mean what I'm doing? And she goes, well, you keep jingling all that change in your pocket in front of these people who are asking for help. That's kind of rude. I never thought about it. For me, it was just something to do with my hands. But it brought to my attention the people that were sitting there asking for help. I had been brought up in such a way, and it has nothing to do with my parents, but culturally, because of where I lived, to not pay attention to the people sitting on the street asking for help. They didn't exist. They were invisible. And after that, my heart broke for people, and I learned how to watch for those that really needed help in the city and those who didn't. Because let's be honest, there are those in our society today who will stand there with a sign that says, need food, need help, but they're wearing a $150 pair of Nikes. Okay, that doesn't say I need help. That just means I'm lazy and don't want to go to work. But there are those who are struggling. So Jesus looks at our motives. He looks at why we do things. He warns his disciples that obedience in the public arena does not guarantee a reward from God because it is the motive behind what we do that is important, not just the action. Psalms 37, 21 says, The wicked borrow and never repay, but the godly are generous givers. John 7, 18, Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves, but a person who seeks honor to honor the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. What are your motives? What are the motives behind why you give? What are the motives behind what you do? Do you simply do it because you want God to give you something back? If that's your motive, if you're doing it simply because, well, I was told to do it, your motive isn't pure. Your motive is, the term I, I believe is rote. It's an automatic response. Jesus is saying, I don't want an automatic, automated response. I want your response to be out of your heart and to be because you love me and because you want to be like me. Because you want a relationship that is so close to me that you respond as I would respond to those in need. How do you respond to people? How do you give? How do you give back to God? Is it something you do that is an automatic process? Or do you do it because you love him and you want to build his kingdom? Timothy 6.18 Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Always being ready to share with others. The true spiritual person recognizes the plight of the needy and attends to the responsibility to take care of them. It does not push it off on someone else. Those who give out of the fullness of their hearts are those who have been transformed by the power and grace of the righteousness of God. And their lives have been forever changed. And they know their reward is not this side of heaven, but is eternal. 
You see, you may be looking now saying, well, if I do this and it's automatic and I just give, God will reward me down the road. He'll provide me a better house. He'll provide me a nicer car. He'll provide me better friends. You know, people look for everything nowadays. I got bad news for you. If that's why you're doing it, it's the wrong reasons. We don't give (coughs) to the church. We don't give to the needy because we expect God to give back to us. We give to them because God gave to us first. The reality is, is everything you have in your wallet, in your pocketbook, in your home, doesn't belong to you anyways. It belongs to him. So the reality is, is that if you are doing it for the right reasons, you're taking what he has given you and said, Lord, I love you so much, I want to give back to you. And Lord, I know... (laughs) I know you only say you want 10% back and you're getting me 90, Lord, but Lord, (laughs) guess what? You've blessed me. I I can do this and I can do it till it hurts because you've got me because you're the reason I do it. We look at giving as, as some form that says, oh, I have to suffer, but the reality is it's not suffering. It's love. It's grace. It's relationship to the one who's already given everything to us. So you see, the reason why we do things matters. It matters how we give. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And then Jesus goes on to say, well, how you give matters in this form too. I love this. This is another one I take back to San Francisco, but I've seen it in lots of churches. When you give... Do you give out of love and grace, and it's not about you, so you just give? Or are you the type of person that nobody hears like this, so you're all safe? Pastor, I got a $100 check right here. Here's my offering. Do you have to draw attention to you? Or are you the type that says, Lord, you've given to me, and I will give back to you out of love and grace? I don't need the attention. I don't need the accolades. What I need is to be humble like you have taught me to be humble and to return to you. Proverbs 21, 14 says, A secret gift calms anger. A bribe under the table pacifies fury. Think about that for a minute. A bribe under the table pacifies fury. What are your reasons for doing it? Are you trying to pacify the Lord? I I talked to a lady in one of the churches we were in, and she came and said, God convicted me. I haven't tithed in a couple of years, Lord, and I'm going to start to tithe, Pastor. And I said, hey, that's great. I'm so excited for you. And she told me, she said, "Um, so I have all these back tithes I've got to account for. It's going to take me a while to pay those up. Huh? I said, whoa, 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 back this train up. What, what, what are we talking about here? She goes, well, I haven't tithed in a couple of years, so I figure I owe all of that back to God. I said, um, do you think God is your bookie? And she said, what? And I said, you, you asked forgiveness for not tithing, not being obedient? Well, yeah. Okay, has God forgiven you? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, the good news is, is he doesn't hold a debt anymore. He says, I've forgiven that. I've washed it away. Let's start from scratch. I said, so from this day forward, since you've been forgiven, start tithing. Start doing what's right. And she goes, it's really that simple? And I said, yeah, it's that simple. 
No, it can't be that simple. I said, it is that simple. To this day, she's still tithing. No matter where her finances are, no matter how things are, she still strives out of every check to tithe because that is relational. And she knows on the weeks she doesn't tithe, the week is going to be rough. So she says, Lord, I love you enough that right out of my check, right off the first bit of it, as soon as it comes in, I give so that I can give to you out of love. It's not because I have to. It's not because I feel guilty, but it's because I love you enough for what you've done for me. You see, we're, be, we're called to be a people who give and to do it because of Christ. We aren't called to be stingy with our time, our resources, or our finances because they all came from God in the first place, and they're all His. So it's better for us to give them back to Him than to hoard them to ourselves. James 4.17 says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, It is sin for them. You hear what James is saying? You know what you're supposed to do. And if you don't do it for the right reasons, it's sin. Then he goes on and he talks about prayer. We spent a lot of time talking about prayer. But devout Jews, they prayed several times a day. So let's talk about this. They would pray in the morning and the evening. They would recite what's called the Shema. The Shema is exactly this. It starts at Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. I impress them on your, your, impress them on your children Talk about them when you sit at home and when you're walking along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. And that was just the morning and the evening. If that wasn't enough prayer, at nine in the morning and noon and three in the afternoon, the Jews would pray what was called the, uh, excuse me for pronunciation on this, Shemona Esra. The translation of this is the 18 benedictions. This is another focused prayer. In Acts, we see how important prayer is to the disciples in the fact that we see both Peter and John in Acts 3.1 go to the 3 o'clock prayer session at the synagogue. These are disciples of Jesus. And still, they honored the Jewish tradition of prayer. So when a set time of prayer arrives, the Jews would stop what they were doing. They would stop right then and there, and they would pray. And Jesus says, go into your, some translations say, go into your coat closet. Some say, go into your room. Reality is, at this point in time, what it translates to is, go into your private place. Go into a place away from other people. Now, Jesus knew that that this wasn't going to work for everybody because in some of the bigger cities, if you're conducting business, you can't always run home and, okay, close the door and get away. So he makes it very clear, just don't put on a show. You see, because what would happen with some Jews, especially the religious leaders, when it came time for prayer, they would be in the street and they would stop where they were. Oh, Holy Father, I'm here. Let me pray to you. And they'd make a big scene. Because they want everybody to know it's all about God. 
or not is this about God, it's about me. Look, I'm obeying, I'm being obedient, I'm being right. It's a show. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking against. Now, I want you to understand something with this, because what some people will say is, is Pastor, so what you're telling me is God doesn't want corporate prayer. No, God wants you to have your personal prayer life, but God also wants you to have corporate prayer. And we're going to talk about that in a minute because Jesus is very clear about that in this passage as well. Jesus tells his disciples that they should not show others what they're doing. They shouldn't stand out. They should just stop. I love walking into a restaurant and to see quiet bowed heads. They're not there to draw attention to they're simply stopping to pay respect, to give honor to God for what he has given. I love going to around the flagpole with the students to see them come to the flagpole and take the time to bow heads and say, Lord, we give our school and our lives to you. 9.20 Sunday morning, I love seeing the group of people that comes and says, Lord, I'm going to get my rear out of bed early and I'm going to show up for prayer because it's not about me. It's about you. It's about your church. It's about your kingdom. It's about what's important. It's about taking the time to say, Lord, it's all about you. You see, the focus of this is on intimacy. It's on communion with God in our hearts, which is at the center of all prayer whether it happens to be given in a public place or a private setting, is the focus on relationship with Jesus Christ or are you simply making it about you? We talk about intimacy, but what does real intimacy look like? And And this is where I think it's important for us to realize that even corporate prayer is intimate because Jesus tells us a little further into the passage in a section we didn't read that we are to call God our Father. Nowadays, we don't think about it, but I, I really want you to stop and think about it. To the Jews, this is personal. This is relationship. This is closer than anything they've ever experienced because you have to realize for the Jews, they really, really, really don't say God's name. They avoid it. So for Jesus to say, when you pray, you start by saying, our Father. Now for some people, a relationship with dad may not be the best relationship to think about, but the reality is is that we think about this relationship with God This is our father. Translation is Abba. Papa. Daddy. I don't know about you, but when my kids come running and I hear, Dad! It's the greatest feeling in the world. It's such an intimate feeling. Now, I'm sorry if Doug came running at me and yelled, Dad, and charged me, I'd I'd probably sidestep. I love you, Doug, but it's a difference between my kids and a friend. Doug may be a good friend, but I'm not his dad. Sorry. Um, (laughs) the, The reality is, think about this. God wants you to call him Papa, Father, Abba, Daddy. 
He wants you to run to his presence. Daddy, here I come. I don't want to be anywhere else than at your feet, on your lap, clinging to you. I want you. That's the relationship that he wants. I'll tell you, it was, it was the hardest thing. Crystal, Crystal heard when it, when it happened for me in Wisconsin. All these years as a pastor, I, I would never call him anything other than father. And when I prayed, Papa, no. And then something broke, and, and my prayer life changed when all of a sudden it wasn't just father. Papa, I need you. Papa, I can't do this. Papa, I, I need more of you, less of me. Do you see the intimacy that he wants with us? Romans 8.15 says, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. He has adopted you. You are no longer I don't know Bart's dad's name, but you are no longer Bart Reed from the line of the Reeds. You are now Bart Reed, child of God. Put your name in there. This is you. You are a son or a daughter of the king. He wants that type of relationship with you that you have been made into a prince or a princess. He loves you. And what he wants is a relationship that is prayer-based, that is that close. Galatians 4, 6, And because we are his children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Do you hear how important this is? How much he wants this relationship? This isn't just something that's passing. This is important. And this is the prayer life he wants. And if this is just in prayer, think of what he'll do in response to prayer. Isn't that amazing? Oftentimes we think prayer is just something we do over a meal. But no, the reality is that prayer is a doorway. It is a gateway to connect with our Father. To stop and spend time with him. It's not about anything else. It's about him and his will. And how we can learn to live like him. It means we can be more concentrated on the things he wants us to focus on. And less focused on the things this world wants us to be focused on. To do this means we have to make both private, and corporate prayer a priority in our lives. We have to stop what we're doing and be with him in both corporate and private prayer. If you're not willing to stop and spend time with him in prayer, what do people see when they look at you? Do they see his child? Or do they see someone who's just putting on a facade? 
Jesus goes ahead and he jumps down into, when you jump into verse 16, this is the second half of the passage, he draws our attention to fasting. Well, what is fasting? Fasting is the, is the option to say, I'm going to give up something to focus on something else. Now, when we talk biblically, most of the time we talk about food. Nowadays, you can fast from just about anything. No, you can't fast from your wife, Bart. <laughs> but the reality is, is that we fast so that we can focus on Jesus Christ and our relationship with him. We give up something that we think we have to have. We surrender it. It can be food. It could be basketball. Uh-oh. It could be guns. It could be cars. It could be something. It, it, it just has to be something that draws your attention away from him. You surrender it. Yes, it could be Facebook. Facebook, oh my goodness. Let's, let's talk social media. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, if I, if I gave that five minutes of Facebook time, oh, hold on, I bet you it's not five minutes. That 30 minutes of scrolling through my phone. Oh, look, Bobby hit a home run today. I'll get to you in a minute, God. Oh, look, Judy next door, she got her hair done. Isn't that cute? Yeah, I got to tell her it's cute. I'll get to you in a minute, God. Put down the phone. Put down Facebook. Lord, I really want to be on Facebook, but Lord, I want to focus on you. And it's, you're more important than Facebook. I'm giving up Facebook for Lent. Are you willing to focus on him? The expression used in Leviticus for fasting is to deny ourselves or to humble our souls. This indicates that in addition to abstaining from food, people were to demonstrate a humbling of their souls by wearing sackcloth, mourning, and praying. So you see there's a combination of this. Now, I've, I've handled sackcloth. I really have a respect for these people. Let's be honest today, if most of us wore sackcloth, You'd be in here whining, Pastor, I can't do this. <laughs> I got, I'm rubbed raw. <laughs> but it's, the reality is, is that, you see, they, they wore this because the focus is not on them. The focus isn't on how they're dressed. The focus isn't on how they look. The focus is on what they're giving up to focus on Jesus Christ and their relationship with him. Psalms 35, 13 and 14 says, Yet when they were ill, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. When my prayers returned to me unanswered, I went about mourning as though for my friend or brother. I bowed my head in grief as though weeping for my mother. Isaiah 58.3 says this, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Does that sound like fasting? I'm going to fast, Lord. But now I'm going to go show people that I don't live like you. I'm just doing it for show. If you're going to fast, your life has to show Jesus. Joel 2.13, don't tear your clothes in grief, but tear your heart instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love he is eager to relent and not to punish you you see god doesn't want punishment god doesn't want to have to punish his people the reality of this is is, is we get going that god is an angry god no god is a lover 
The greatest love story you will ever read, better than any trashy romance book, is right here in red letters. And what he asked is for you to focus on him. And when you fast, to not put on a show, but to say, Lord, when I have that urge for whatever it is I'm fasting from, I'm going to stop what I'm doing and I'm going to focus on you. Not only am I going to take the extra time and devotions and prayer, Lord, but I'm going to set, a time, set aside those times when those hunger pains come or that desire to get on Facebook happens. Oh, Lord, you know, I, I normally do 45 minutes of Facebook at night. Well, right now I'm going to do 45 minutes of prayer with you. Now, Jesus is pretty clear about how we're not supposed to be. And one commentary put it this way. When they talk about people fasting and what they did, the Greek verb, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce it for this, uh, means to disfigure. And this means to make invisible. What happens is, when Jesus talks about the hypocrites, he talked about those who would fast and they do it for show. And when they do it for show, they start putting the oil on their head and the ashes, and this would all drip down into their faces. Doesn't sound like it's very secluded or secret, does it? And the problem is, is that they're doing it for show. They want everybody to know, look, I'm fasting. The reality is, is that the problem is, is they become invisible because nobody knows who they are all of a sudden. Who is that under all of that stuff coming down their face? So Jesus says, don't make this a show. Don't fast because you want to put on a show. Fast because you want to be closer to me, because you want to hear my voice, because you want a relationship with me that is so close that when people see you, they see me. We fast because we want to be with him. We fast because we want to hear his voice. We want to know what he wants. That's the reason we fast. We want a relationship that is drawing closer and closer to him and farther and farther away from the world. And when we fast, our hunger pains draw us to a closer relationship with Jesus Christ. Because our focus is on him and him alone. So our hearts are to be drawn closer to Christ in everything we do. Not simply in our Sunday services. Our lives are to be ones that strive to show Christ in all things and in all places. But we must remember that when God looks at our hearts, he'll be looking at our motives. The why we did what we did. Did we do it because of our love and desire to be more like him? Or did we do it because we want to put on a show for the world? Luke 8, 17 says, For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open, and everything that is concealed will be brought into the light and made known to all. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed in his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. The reality is, folks, I got bad news for you. If your motives are your own, you're not going to hide them. He already knows why you did it. God doesn't want Sunday visitations. 
God wants complete and full surrender to him. If your life is a life of leading in the church, he wants you to lead in a way that shows his grace and his mercy and his love in everything you do. And while you're building his kingdom, he doesn't want you to take shortcuts. He doesn't want you to do cheap and shoddy workmanship. He wants your best. He wants your whole commitment and your dedication to him in everything you do and everything you say. If you put your name on it, you better be putting his name on it. Our obedience is central to discipleship. Just as Jesus called his followers to adhere to the motive behind their obedience to the Old Testament and not simply to carry out an external obedience. So let me ask you this. Are you going through the motions? Or are you giving God your best? This week, as you spend time with the Holy Spirit, if you're really spending quality time with the Holy Spirit, what will he find as he examines your heart? Will he find a relationship that is growing closer to him and that your motives are pure and in line with what he wants? Or will he find more of, I'll get back to you in a minute. Just give me a minute. I'll be there in a minute. You see, the road of the righteous is straight and narrow. But the road of the world is wide and filled with twists and turns. Our motives and our hearts should match the road that we are traveling on. As we begin the season of Lent, let us examine our hearts and our motives. Let us come before the Lord with repentance, seeking reconciliation and his love. Let us lay down the things of this world and fast from the things that draw us away from our relationship and our focus with Christ. And may our hearts and minds be centered fully on his will. The passage this morning, what are the motives of your heart? I got a friend who calls this um, putting on the spurs for the message. Because it's pointed. Because it challenges us to look deep. It challenges us to realize, are we really living the life that we're called to live? Or are we just putting on a show? This morning, I'm going to ask Kimberly to come and just play something for us. And I want us to take some time. Take some time to pray. And to really seek his heart and his will. Are you desiring a closer relationship with him? Do you want to be more like him in everything? Maybe there's some things in your life that you have refused to surrender. Surrender. 
Jesus, I'll be there in a minute. Jesus, I'll be there in a minute. Is he calling you to lay it down? The altar is open this morning. Would you come as the music's playing and just respond and meet him at his throne?
God wants to do so much in this church. But church, let's be honest. God can only do as much as we're willing to allow him to do. And that means we have to surrender fully and completely and commit to him. And the first step is to be a house of prayer. The second step is repentance. We need to repent. And we've talked about this before, and there have been those who've, who've come forward to repent. And Guys, I'm not picking on anybody in the church, but but let's be honest, there are things that have happened in the life of this church that have not brought glory and honor to God. Maybe some of you know them. Maybe some of you don't know them. And that's okay. But God wants to clear away all of that old stuff if we're willing to come and lay it down and give it to Him. Because when we repent, not only for ourselves, but for our church, for our city God begins anew this morning would you commit we'll put the board on the spot this morning board are you willing to come and stand in the gap to say Lord we're sorry for anything and everything that's happened in the history of our church. We come and we repent. We ask that you would just cleanse us. If, that's, if you're willing to, as a board member, if you're willing to stand in that gap, then I'm going to ask you to come down this morning and to just take a place at the altar. you're not a board member and the Spirit's laid this on your heart as well I'm going to ask you to come and join is it his church or is it our church Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you, Father, for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done and all that you're doing, Lord. Father, we thank you for a love we do not deserve, and yet you still love us. And Father, we come before you this morning as a broken people. We come seeking forgiveness. 
Father, for everything that's happened, everything that's taken place. Lord, if it hasn't brought you honor and glory, we lay it before you now. Father, this is your church. It is not our church. Father, and you're calling us to be your people. And Lord, we want to be your people, and so we come and we surrender. We surrender to you. We surrender this building. We surrender this property. We surrender all that we have as a body to you, Lord. Father, we surrender our finances. Father, we surrender our relationships, our families, our homes, our jobs, our city. Father, we surrender it all to you. And where we've fallen short, we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would renew us. We ask that you would restore us. Father, create in us, in each and every one of us. And Lord, start with me, a pure heart. Father, fill this place. Don't let us leave this place until we leave filled with you. Lord, we surrender our city to you. We surrender our government to you. We surrender everything to you, Lord. And Father, we just ask Papa, today that you would come and you would throw open the doors to this city for us to be your light into it. That everywhere we go, every place we are, Father, we would shine for you. That we would be beacons of your hope and your gospel and your love. Jesus, go with us this week. Make us more like you. Jesus, we love you and we want to be more like you. And we thank you for who you are and for what you've done.